91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware. I'm Bill Humphrey, and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on November 19th, 2017, and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, Rachel and Jonathan joined me to talk about the Democratic Party's toxic relationship with the payday loan and financial tech industries, as well as potential solutions like postal banking. All that and more just ahead on Arsenal for Democracy. Episodes are available for download on Tuesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes or Stitcher. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it simultaneously from wvud.org on Tuesdays at noon Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. This is Arsenal for Democracy. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as usual, is Rachel. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me again. And back in studio for the first time in many months, now that the campaign season is over, uh, Jonathan Cohn, welcome back. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me on. How did the campaigns go this year? Depends on which one. Some of them are very good. Some of of them, I was disappointed with the results. But look forward to see when, what the people do in the future. How was it talking to people, uh, voters on the doors in the Trump era? So to me, it didn't actually feel that different than talking to people before, except for like occasionally when people would be like, my number one issue is I want to see Trump impeached. But from like a local level, a lot of the issues are going to be the same about what people care about. So that like when canvassing in a place like Boston or Boston and Cambridge where where most of my canvassing, affordable housing is still the top thing on people's minds. It was the same before Trump got elected, the same after. One thing that I think definitely did happen that I would say, like, in terms of things that were new, I wasn't as actively involved in the Somerville races. I just canvassed a couple times. But major props to the folks from our revolution, Somerville, as well as DSA Boston, who were able to get a number of people elected on, on the board of aldermen in Somerville. One thing which would be a mix of the post-Bernie Sanders campaign, as well as like anger, resentment, activation post-Trump, was that they saw much higher turnout in Somerville than they have in past municipal elections. And with that heavily driven by people 18 to 35. I was going to note one, one other thing regarding local elections here that was, a, that was a note that I think also speaks to stuff happening in other states as well, was the increased diversity of the Boston City Council, where Boston City Council, which as of like 2009 only had one woman, or as of like 20, yeah, the, Ayanna Presley was elected in 2009, that she I believe was the eighth or ninth woman to ever serve on the Boston City Council, and now they're six out of the 13 are all of whom are women of, women of color, whether Asian-American, African-American, or Arab-American. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of does that change the dynamics of the council in any way? 
It'll be fun to see. I had worked for one of them in a seat that's one of the two uh, majority-minority districts in the city. So it was likely that it was going to stay. And we elected the first woman to hold the seat, uh, Kim Janey. And one exciting race was uh, Lydia Edwards' victory in, in the North End, Charlestown, East Boston seat, which is a seat that's traditionally been held by an Italian, kind of like an old-school Italian political establishment. And so she was, the, I believe, the first woman and definitely the, fir- the first not-Italian-American to, to hold the seat. The other thing that I was going to mention before we get going is uh, that our past co-host, Greg, who often comes on the show or had come on the show to talk about uh, healthcare systems and everything, he uh, received his master's in public health this past week. So that if you've been wondering where he's been, he's been grinding away on finishing that last part of his uh, degree. And he uh, said we could mention that he had finally uh, received his master's. So he is officially a public health professional with a master's degree in public health. And he's going to get out there and get a single payer health care. That's, he said, his objective. So um, congratulations to Greg and welcome back to Jonathan. Uh, all right. Well, let's get into our uh, topic of discussion uh, that we're starting off with this week. Um, this is about the payday loans industry and specifically the kind of toxic and damaging relationship that some Democrats at the federal level uh, especially have with it. Um, there was a controversial bill that came up uh, in the last couple weeks Um Jonathan, why don't you walk us through what was this bill about and and what was the controversy? Uh, so, so this is the bill f- filed by um, Mark Warner, Democrat Mark Warner from Virginia in the Senate, uh, with several co-spon- kind of co-sponsors in the House. It was, uh, was it Henry or McHenry from North Carolina, Gwen Moore of Wisconsin, the Milwaukee area, and Gregory Meeks from Long Island, called the Protecting Consumers Access to Credit Act. The bill despite what some of its backers would say, would effectively be gutting regulation around payday lending to be able to allow kind of allow the rates that they charge kind of to skyrocket with kind of leading to rates of perhaps 30, 350% or could end up, people can, could face rates of 350% or more. Not all states actually regulate the payday loan industry well. Some of them have been able to use kind of existing laws on the books against usury, put, impose regulations. Some states, I don't know if Florida, it's just weakly regulated or not regulated at all, but I know Florida's a bastion of the payday lending industry. But yeah, so this is um, that the pushback against the pushback in favor of the payday lending industry is in many ways follow, um, following from a rule from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that came out last year. It was, I believe, in the late spring, early summer, where the CPFB put out kind of rules, kind of cracking down on the industry and its predatory practices. And that inspired last year, had inspired a kind of immediate pushback from Republicans, pretty much as an entire party, and some particularly less than, less than good uh, <laughs> Democratic politicians as well, who are, like many in Florida, uh, who tend to be sympathetic toward the industry's aims. And so this is kind of weakening of what the CPFB has done as well as the bill is kind of one of Mark Warner's latest things is about like financial technology stuff, which is basically he wants to allow allow these people who have their web apps for bank for lending to be able to evade basic regulations. Well, I saw someone online refer to it as like, you know, that that as long as they have an app, then you can't call it payday loans. Like, you know, that that there's a lot of the, and I've been really skeptical of a lot of these as well, but I mean, you'll hear about, like ads on podcasts and things about like, you know, new innovative 
financial savings technologies or whatever, and they're all like registered in Utah, which I feel like should be a red flag immediately if all the companies are registered in one particular state. That usually means that they've t- finding a loophole where some state in particular, whether it's Delaware or South Dakota or whatever, you know, regulates things differently than all the other states. You know, and and it's I think it's reasonable to be wary of a lot of these. But the yeah, that this this push by Mark Warner is like, oh, I'm just here to support the emerging, you know, innovative financial technologies or whatever. And it's like, well, is this really innovation or did they just throw some lines of code together to, well, no pun intended, codify an existing industry, Mm -hmm. but for a new era, basically. See, it's not called exploitation. If it's done with an app, it's called disruption. Good point. Um, (laughs) And then as well, just that for those who aren't familiar with the payday loan industry, that they're basically kind of a predatory lending system where you charge people enormous rates because the the people who don't have have a lot of access to capital or a lot of money, so you're able to loan them, give them loans, which they need for basic goods, but you're like, I'm going to charge you 200% interest on this loan. Uh, Rachel, did you have any uh, initial thoughts on some of this? Well, I just think it's it's really egregious that we're we're reducing regulations on um, an industry that that is so harmful to low income people. Um, they charge fees for check cashing. So if if a community is underserved by banks or just don't have access to a bank account. They're really vulnerable to this industry, and they get fee- they in addition to these high interest rates, and they get uh, charged fees every time they have to cash a check. So if you don't have a bank account, there's not really a good way to to check to cash your paychecks. Um, so they're they're getting charged three to ten dollars, I believe, for every um, check cashed. And if you're just making two hundred dollars every week or two weeks that that's a pretty significant chunk of change that's getting taken out of every paycheck so it's just really egregious that that we're reducing these regulations and i think that it's important to emphasize here that when we're being critical of the notion of like oh if it has this like fancy internet tech component to it that you know we should be immediately skeptical of it and you know that it's still the same when we're saying it's still the same as the like traditional check cashing and payday loan places uh with the various exorbitant interests and problems and fees like we've talked a bunch on the show and 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 did a big guest interview on it uh in 2015 about the problems with the rush card from russell simmons um, you know, I mean, he, it's not like he personally is doing it like they just lends his name and credibility to it, essentially. But like whatever bank or, you know, enter financial enterprise was disrupting the market by doing these cards, they're basically debit cards, essentially, where you're uh, sort of like e-check cashing, mm-hmm. where your paycheck is being directly deposited to the card. Like we saw what happened if that had a problem if the you know if the company did not have its act together and you know keep in mind how many startups and the you know new new apps and technologies have problems initially or fail or whatever like it, the odds of of one of these things having a significant technical problem that causes people great hardship is pretty high what happened there was that there was some sort of like oh we were doing a system update or something and then all of a sudden everyone's accounts like were shown as having zero money in them or whatever and and the money was actually there and and eventually they were able to fix it but again if you're talking about people whose entire paycheck is being deposited automatically to this card and they pay all of their utility bills and rent and everything and buy their groceries and all that if they pay all of that using this debit card that has all the money in the world that they get every month or every two weeks and they suddenly can't access it and they you know 
even a few days is a huge problem for these people, but I think it ended up being at least a week or two. And like, that could literally be the difference between people being able to stay in their homes, you know, Mm -hmm. people being able to feed their kids, people being able to keep the lights on, keep the heat on. Like that's a disaster for people if they are, if they are literally living that close to the edge financially as so many people in this country are. And so like, it's enormously risky to have these different, you know, these newer tech technological services. But of course the non-technological alternatives are also terrible. Mm-hmm. And, and that that's where we're running into this problem. Like the, the, that they're the Democrats and these other folks are weakening these regulations being promulgated by the consumer financial protection bureau, which is about to, by the way, lose its uh, director. Uh, Richard Cordray is leaving mm-hmm. uh, early. I think there's a lot of speculation that he's going to run for governor of Ohio, but we don't know for sure yet. I think if that's actually happening, um, but you know, he's leaving early uh, and that, I mean, that agency is going to be thrown to the wolves in about five seconds. Um, but what little they have managed to accomplish, despite overwhelming opposition from these financial interests and their political, uh, you know, uh, hands in government, um, like going ahead and weakening that further is just uh, like un- unthinkable. And, and it's just really interesting to see what actually survives of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's work. So that, like, for instance, the, what I was noting before about the rule passed last summer, and just uh, to clarify, it was about. Uh, it was a rule requiring lenders to assess whether uh, potential borrowers can afford to pay back a loan within 30 days so that you don't end up having a system, having like a terrible kind of phenomenon where people just keep having to take out new loans to pay back the old loans and then it just kind of goes into a death trap. Uh, that That's not actually fully going into effect until 2019. So, and given the fact that a lot of these regulations, kind of, it was the one thing that with many of the regulations of the Obama administration, they tend to have slow phase-in times because they're trying to make sure that it does, it's not too disruptive to industry. One time where industry hates disruption is when it's regulating themselves. That one, one kind of, it's kind of depressing to think of how many of the different regulations could just be completely gutted by new leadership there. It's kind of easy to assume that whoever Trump points at the position, I know Mick, uh, OMB, uh, yeah, Mick Mulvaney uh, was going to be the acting director because yeah. he's already gotten a Senate confirmation for the other things. So yeah, they were for, like, uh, and I mean, that dude just wants to gut everything in government. Yes. So that's going to be a disaster. And Republicans have for a while wanted to, and I don't, they they probably still wouldn't have votes in the Senate to do this unless they attach it to something that only needs 50 votes, is that they've, Republicans have wanted to subject the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to the appropriations process that it's currently exists outside of that uh, with the concern that if it was subject to congressional appropriations, oh, look, we've appropriated nothing to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or that it would be consistently under what needs to be done for basic functioning as they do for many other government agencies. You you alluded earlier to Florida and specifically Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the former longtime DNC chair, seems to be very closely affiliated to these industries um, and, you know, blocking uh, any sorts of efforts to regulate and crack down on the title loan and payday loan and check cashing industries, um, doing that in both her congressional and DNC capacities. I mean, everyone, I think at this point knows she's, she was just a real disaster uh, and needs to be gone from government in general. But between that and between Mark Warner's bill in Congress weakening these regulations, uh, the thing that I was thinking of was that 
this goes even more to your point that you brought up a lot on the show about how Republicans target the centers of financial power that help the Democrats when they're in power. You know, when mm-hmm. Republicans are in power, they go after anything that's going to help the Democrats financially. And when Democrats are in power, they don't reciprocate that. They don't attack the Republican sources of power. This is like uh, kind of a you know triple whammy even beyond that because it's both a thing that actively hurts the democratic constituents uh many you know uh african-american and latino voters low-income folks Mm -hmm. in general especially in urban areas um and then additionally uh you were noting uh off air before the show there's a statistic you have on how this actually is uh an industry that they're protecting despite it not being a pro-democratic industry exactly like it's from it was cited uh, in a piece in the IB Times by Alex Koch, who's a good reporter based out of North Carolina, who noted that 90% of the industry's donations are to the Republican Party. So that, like, if Democrats are going to shill for some industry, at least, like, I can understand when they support terrible things to enrich Hollywood, like their terrible copyright stuff, like when they're back with, like, the Sopa Piper, the kind of stuff, online piracy, etc. Before, Hollywood wanted it and Hollywood donates. It was terrible legislation. I'm glad that it failed. But Democrats like enriching people who don't even donate to them and disproportionately donate to their opponents. The same time is that they will do it. Like, supporting gutting payday lending regulations reminds me of when Democrats voted to defund ACORN, a coalition of community groups across the country that did a lot of work in terms of engaging low-income communities in the political process and making sure and helping them get access to basic resources. What, one thing particularly sad around that, that as the article's about this, so so like by Alex Koch in the IB Times and Zach Carter in the Huffington Post, noted that members of the Congressional Black Caucus like Gwen Moore of Milwaukee and Gregory Meeks, who I believe lives in Long, Long Island, I think his district might include some of New York City. Um, I think it include, might include part of Queens, but I think he lives in Long Island, that they're doing things that will damage their own constituents, like particularly Gwen Moore in, in a place like Milwaukee, where her district is her district has many people who are going to be targeted by this industry and it's very unfortunate to see that there was a good piece particularly about a, a good article from zach carter uh several years in the huffington post several years ago about the war going on within the congressional black caucus about financial regulations where, where it was, uh maxine waters who's gained in popularity over the past year uh, was the ranking Democrat in the Financial Services Committee and was kind of tearing into some of her colleagues who were signing on to, like, bill after bill, gutting basic provisions of Dodd-Frank and such colleagues were, like, people like Greg Meeks, uh, Gwen Moore, uh, Lacey Clay of Missouri, Terry Sewell of Alabama, uh, because they uh, basically had been doing the bidding of prominent industry industry and lobbyists where rather than protecting the constituency that the caucus is supposed to serve. And I think also this reminds me a little bit of what we had talked about earlier in the year about uh, the utility companies basically, you know, sponsoring the um, like they would sponsor a convenient Democrat in the primaries, but they overwhelmingly actually give to the Republicans mm-hmm. and then, you know, try to just, they just still manage to punish and control. I mean, we saw in the Virginia governor's race, like they backed yeah. Northam over uh, Periello in the primary, but they were really like in the tank for uh, Gillespie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also they made uh, Northam remove 
the black lieutenant governor nominee from his literature because he was opposed to the utility companies and opposed to the pipelines. Wasn't La Una also part of that? Yeah, the the um, the unfortunate union that keeps defending pipeline projects. Um, You know, now in contradiction to basically, uh, you know, AFL-CIO resolutions Mm -hmm. on climate change that say that we need to be transitioning people in fossil fuel related jobs away from those jobs and giving them new opportunities but that that those are those are gone like we need Mm -hmm. to you know walk away from that um and yeah so there's there's a lot of similarity there um and certainly not none of this really does much to dispel the notion especially from some segments of the left that the democratic party uh, especially lately has become sort of the controlled opposition party of the republicans Mm -hmm. like you know that they they exist to be the official opposition party not a majority party because when they are in power and actually win these elections then they are continuing to sponsor legislation that actively hurts their own voting constituents and enriches an industry that donates 90% of its campaign contributions to the Republicans. I can see why people would be skeptical and, and say that this looks a lot like in these various, you know, uh, you know, communist single party states where you have an official party that's like has five members and is like, oh, that's the opposition party, you know, and they, they, they just go along with what the majority party wants. So I can see why people would, would start feeling that way. The one thing I was just thinking of is that in terms of uh, our first declared can- Democratic candidate for 2020, uh, John Delaney of Maryland's 6th District, who has no reason to be running because he's terrible and he's not cares- both bad on policy and bad on personality, is one of like the main players in financial deregulation in the House Democratic Caucus. And then the one article that I alluded to before uh, from the Huffington Post in 2014 noted that for most things in financial regulations, the your avenue into the Democratic caucus was through the quote-unquote three J's, uh, Jim Himes of Connecticut, John Delaney of Maryland, and uh, and then John Carney from Delaware. Yeah, now the current governor of, yeah. of Delaware. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, maybe Delaney's just running to get some ideas out there in the presidential field, ideas like how 500% interest on small loans <laughs> is actually a good thing. Right. Rachel, uh, I want to get back to you. I think the, the left is uh, gaining a lot of power and getting a voice that is able to push back on these issues. So I I think these recent elections have shown that a leftist message can um, can get the votes, can get the, the backing of the people. So I think um, we have a lot of momentum built and we can start pushing against these corporatist uh, Democrats that are that are actively hurting their constituents. So I I'm I'm optimistic that we can continue to to vote these people out of office and and to make make things better for for the base. Now, one specific thing that has been floated uh, in the past, um, and it actually existed in the United States uh, from 1910 to 1967, and in fact exists in almost every other system in the world, even more so than healthcare, we're talking like even in poor countries, this is a thing that exists, is the concept of postal banking. Uh, Only 7% of postal systems do not include a postal banking mechanism. Uh, Rachel, talk to me a little bit about how postal banking works works and what those services would look like. So uh, the postal uh, banking system is an opportunity for, for rural areas, um, underserved areas, um, poor areas to, to have access to these low cost or no cost banking services, such as check cashing, small loans, um, just a way to, to 
avoid these huge banks that have really shady business practices um, and uh, that don't often go into rural or poor areas to offer their banking services in the first place. And that's where you get these shady payday loan check cashing places popping up because they have a niche that they can fill. So this was kind of cut those people off at the pass and offer those those banking services to poor and underserved communities. Um, and it wouldn't uh, add any extra costs to banking service, to postal services or to taxpayers. So it, it's really a win-win situation. And it reminds me kind of in a way of the, kind of the origin of the, with the post office itself, because sending that if you had a privatized system, it, it would not be economic to have that in kind of heavily rural areas with low populations. Just in the way that like if you were running a small bank, it's not going to be a profitable thing when you don't have a large volume of people or if you or if you have a place where there's just not a lot of money there so that so that you end up developing predatory practices where you have the high interest rates to offset high risk. Whereas it's something that like in other cases like that, the government can come in and should come in. Right. It's just like you can mail a letter for what is it now? 41 cents and you can mail it all the way across the country mm-hmm. or to the deepest de- like reaches of Alaska. And it doesn't cost you any more than mm-hmm. than mailing it across town. So it it, it really uh, helps improve access to to people that don't get access to other mm-hmm. services. In the United States, about 25 percent of U.S. families in the bottom fifth of income don't have like transaction accounts at a normal bank, that sort of thing. Uh, that's what's forcing a lot of them to go to uh, even just check cashing places. Mm-hmm. We're not even talking about payday loans, title loans, pawn shops, any of that. Like just to be able to get the money from your mm-hmm. check, you know, that you got at your place of work turned into money you can use. Mm-hmm. They're either going to a check cashing place or they're using one of these sort of disruptive, innovative E versions of that, like, uh, you know, like the rush card that we talked about earlier. Um, also, uh, you know, beyond that, um, 20 to 40 percent of the U.S. population at some point has had to rely on check cashing or payday lending services, which is just a it, that's a huge mm-hmm. sort of section of the population. And a lot of times they are like getting very small amounts of money, too. Now, most of the postal banking services are, are, you know, proposals like check cashing and things like that or, or small checking accounts, savings accounts, things that they can use a little account. And that's not really costing the bank particularly any money. Uh, and they don't have to get into the issues of like who gets a loan versus who doesn't. A more expansive version of that might involve relatively small, uh, you know, and very low interest lending options. Uh, because again, most of the people who are getting something like a payday loan, it's not for a large amount. I don't have the no- exact number in front of me, but usually the numbers are, are quite small in terms of what the average is that people are uh, borrowing. Um, like say they have to get a $100 loan or a 200 or $300 loan. Like that's a relatively small amount. If they default on it, it doesn't really like cost the federal government that much. If it were a federal loan, like through the bank, you know, the postal service or something like that, or or some other mechanism, um, even if it happened on a like a widespread scale or something, I mean, you know, 
maybe you give people one or two opportunities. If they default, then they don't get another one in the future. But like, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But if you look at it from the perspective of the customer, right? Like, if they're you know they're short on you know two hundred dollars or something, whether it's for rent that week or whether it's for an unexpected expense like their car broke down or something, or whether it's uh, that they just need to buy groceries, like. If they have to get if they get a small loan with very little interest or almost no interest and they can repay it like the next week when their paycheck comes through or something, then that's you know the the government didn't spend that much money, uh, the consumer didn't spend that much money, and everything's good. If on the other hand they have to go to a payday loan place and they have to get the you know a, a, a very relatively small amount of money and then pay some gigantic triple digit interest rate on it or something. Uh, that's going to add up very quickly and put them into a real hole financially uh, that they're going to have a, a tough time digging out of. And a lot of payday loans statistically are taken out uh, just to be able to get another payday loan just to like try to stay you know, above water. And, and it just gets them further and further into debt. And that's not their fault, again, because in many of these areas, whether it's a rural area or whether it's uh, an inner city neighborhood that is just simply not served by traditional banking uh, companies in private hands or their refused uh, accounts at these various banks, like they they have to go to a like a payday loan place or something like that. Jonathan, yeah, when you were talking about like the size that apparently, uh, according to it, this is a little might be outdated. This was a Pew report from 2012, which noted that on average a borrower takes out eight loans of $375 each per year and spends $520 on interest. And it notes that most of these people taking, most of the loans just to cover basic expense, expenses like utility bills. And utility bills, rent, and other recurring expenses. And so, you know, it's certainly worth uh, looking into these various options like postal banking and things like that. Um, Rachel, any closing thoughts from you on this segment? Um, I... I- think that these ideas can can gain more traction. And I, I mean, the Atlantic article was from two years ago. So I think we should just keep discussing it. And especially in light of things like the rush card failing or um, these bills being uh, floated by by pro uh, business Democrats, quote unquote, pro business. Um, so I think I think it's a conversation we should be continuing to have to have. And I think it it's a good idea, especially in light of how there's uh, press about how the postal service is is tanking and it's just not popular. And um, I think having this aspect uh, added to our postal service would would definitely um, help them a lot as well. And just to reiterate, like, again, this isn't unprecedented within the United States, like uh, the Atlantic article from a couple of years ago talks about at the end talks about how there was that system for new immigrants and the poor that was post a postal uh, savings system that wasn't even checking or anything mm-hmm. like that or you know lending it was just a postal savings system uh, that lasted from 1910 to 1967. We've done things like this before. There's also other types of things like this that have been floated, although unsuccessfully in the past, the um, sort of populist uh, nonpartisan league of North Dakota uh, set up what is now the Bank of North Dakota and uh, at the way that it played out because the financial interest tried to kill it essentially is that the Bank of North Dakota ended up becoming more like sort of like a Federal Reserve branch that, you know, 
is processing checks and lending to other banks and that sort of thing, um, but isn't really doing what it was originally intended. What it was originally intended to do was to provide, uh, you know, low interest uh, credit options to farmers. Um, this has been a decades-long challenge in North Dakota. You know, at that point, maybe even a half century. Um, where uh, people, you know, they didn't need a large loan, but they did need uh, some sort of a temporary loan uh, for their small farming operation, their family-owned farm, uh, to get through, you know, whether it was to pay some specific fee or invest in a new tractor or something like that. They needed a relatively small loan, and then once they got through that growing season, you know, uh, or or whether it was maybe it was a loan to get through a particularly bad growing season, but the next growing season, you know, they would hopefully have enough profits to be able to pay that back. Uh, it didn't work out like that, but that was the proposal in creating this state-owned bank. It's a, it's a completely state-owned bank in North Dakota, and we've also seen various publicly-owned banks, municipal bank options like in San Francisco or Oakland or wherever being floated to deal with the fact that uh, – national level privately owned banks aren't supposed to take any sort of drug related money that's in violation of federal law and many states have legalized the sale of uh, marijuana but that's still illegal federally so the banks aren't sure what to do and mostly can't do it so then like someone who owns a marijuana dispensary or something like that in Colorado or in uh, in California, like they end up having to take their business to some really shady things. There was even some articles, um, I think from uh, public radio, uh, I forget which uh, public radio, maybe WBUR even, um, that had talked about how a lot of like the new business for cartels, now that they're losing their traditional illegal marijuana business in many states, uh, is money laundering, like cleaning the money. Like they'll take a big percentage from a legit, officially legal business and they'll they'll turn it into cash that these people can actually use, um, you know, through illegal money laundering. And it's like, well, that didn't really help. If the goal, if part of the goal public policy-wise was to disempower these illegal cartel operations by legalizing the drugs, if we didn't legalize the banking services, then they're either going to have to take it to some sort of shady, you know, non-traditional bank, or they're going to have to take it to the cartels to launder. Like, now we're almost back to square one. Uh, and so various municipal banks have, have looked into potentially starting up options um, that would be, these would be publicly, locally owned banks that can that can clear these sort of um, gray area money things uh, legally and safely. Um, so this is something that has traditionally historically been floated and, and is currently being floated again. Um, and, you know, there, there seems to be some gaining traction for it in terms of uh, potentially that there should be a role for public banking. One thing this was, this was just reminding me of, as you were noting, there was a few years ago, there was a lot of discussion around postal banking and then it kind of disappeared. And although it's not something that necessarily has to go through the legislative process on a national level, because you could just have the post office make the, the board of the post office make that decision. It'd be interesting to see if that the, the whole discussion, I mean, interesting and positive, the discussion would be revived kind of 2019 into 2020, because it actually reminds me of, as an example of some, like, they're kind of the tension with, where you have Democrats talking about whether you, they need to kind of appeal to, like, suburban or exurban, even rural, like, Obama to Trump voters if you need to focus on the people who... D people who did, didn't vote. So that's actually something that does directly target both people and that would directly benefit people in rural areas who tend to have, kind of, face predatory banking because of, like, a weak banking infrastructure there, as well as people in, people in cities who face that. And it would be... 
a great thing for someone to propose, you're not going to win. Like one group is going to be more likely to vote for you than the other one, but it is something that does serve both interests. That does serve both interests. Um, by way of uh, further background, we're going to go to a break now, um, but then uh, I'm going to replay some excerpts from a segment in 2014 that Nate and I did on the issue of payday lending and uh, various predatory banking practices. We weren't talking as much about solutions um, or the current stuff, but just it's a little bit more background on some of these issues, covering a little bit of the same ground, but also some different areas. Uh, And so, uh, you know, Rachel and Nate and I uh, re-listened to that segment and it holds up pretty well. So um, that part we're going to replay after the break. Um, But before we go, uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for being back here in studio this week to talk about this. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun after a long time being away. And Rachel, thank you so much for being on the line to talk about this. Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure. Arsenal for Democracy will be right back in just a moment from arsenalfordemocracy.com and WVUD. Please stick around. Democracy. Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me in studio this week is our co-host, Nate. Nate, welcome back to the program. Thanks a lot, Bill. We're going to jump in the democratization of banking. That title is from an article uh, by Robert J. Schiller. I think it's part of a, a longer book that he'd written a number of years ago on finance in general and the role of finance in modern democracies and other societies. But he had published in July of 2012, he had published an article on The Globalist, and then uh, there was an updated sort of shorter version when I was working there. The thesis of this article was essentially that in the United States, there have kind of been these cycles where banking services are available to average people and especially very low income people, you know, in greater degrees at some point and lesser degrees at other points. And right now we're kind of probably on the lesser end of the cycle there. There's a large segment of the population that has very limited access or problematic access to banking. Yeah, we're just looking at an article here um, citing a Federal Reserve study showing that just going by its 2007 data of the bottom fifth of uh, low income earners in the U.S., 25% have no transactions accounts. So that just means, you know, they're not really able to do things like save, open a checking account, you know, opens a savings account and really put away just a little bit of a nest egg. They're having some problems and that leads obviously to situations where, you know, falling behind on various types of bills and not really having that any of that liquidity that would perhaps, you know, allow them to get by a little bit better in, in leaner times like we've been experiencing in the past couple of years. Right. I mean, it's sort of remarkable if you stop to think about how many different things you can't do when you don't have access to those really basic services. Nate mentioned about the savings that you can't start really saving for a nest egg and things like that. But there's also like if you don't have an account that you can get direct deposit, it makes a lot of things easier if you can get your paychecks directly deposited and then have those sitting there. But then, you know, people go to these check cashing places and stuff, which charge a fee to cash a check. That's a big problem. And those sort of things just sort of ripple out. And then even for people who do have the bank accounts, we've seen that trend in recent years that a lot of even middle class people have started complaining about because it's very frustrating about constant fees on everything, even basic just to hold on to your money for a little bit. 
you know, whether it's a fee at the ATM that's your own bank's ATM or whether it's a, you know, $15 a month charge to have a checking account. And I had an experience with a bank like this recently where they were saying just to have your money there is going to be a $15 a month fee unless you keep at least $2,000 in the account at any given point. And they were, and I, I said, well, that doesn't really make sense. And they said, well, you can change it to have an account where you don't go into the bank and talk to the tellers. And it's like, okay, but now you're saying that people can't go talk to their tellers if they need help with some question or something like that. And yeah. and obviously, if you're at the point where you're living kind of paycheck to paycheck, $15 a month is gonna start to be a pretty big chunk that you're just essentially throwing away at the bank. And you obviously can't keep $2,000 minimum if you're if you're living that close to the margin each month. But again, that's for people who even have a bank account. And again, we're looking at that 25% of the bottom fifth of earners in the United States who don't have any banking services at all. They don't have that bank account. They got to go to those check cashing places or they got to go to payday loans because they don't have access to the personal loans at the bank or the, you know, the home loans and things like that. All those sort of lending services are cut off for those lower income folks. Payday loans in particular is something we should talk about. Nate, you were mentioning to me that you sometimes hear ads related to that. Around yeah, I was here. just going to say, um, you know, I listen to a lot of sports radio, and I guess this is a uh, an issue that, you know, highly concerns their, their clientele, apparently, like uh, representation after being caught drunk driving. So payday loans, basically, they talk about how there's a payday loan nightmare, and people are stuck behind their payday loans, and having to get more and more payday loans. It just sounds like a terrible situation, but... I mean, basically what payday loans are is it's just a small loan that, you know, someone can get, I guess one figure I was looking at maybe around $50 sometimes, you know, as, as low as that. But at the same time, there, there are these agencies that essentially create these sort of private collection services almost. So, you know, you have to, if you take out a small loan and you can't pay it back immediately, then you have to, you know, take out more loans and it's just sort of a cycle, you know, there's overdraft fees because their banks are trying to take money out of your account who have too little on in the account to meet the obligation. So they're basically just charging you for even having this service to begin with. I'm just reading this New York Times editorial about this issue. There's about 15 states that have outlawed this kind of these kind of practices, but there are still 35, obviously, that there's a payday lending law that requires the full amount to be repaid at once. Uh, so there's just all sorts of uh, a patchwork of regulations and, and rules and just all sorts of these pretty bad situations, especially if you're really caught up in these things. Right. The New York Times piece, this was a, an opinion piece from the board of the New York Times back in November of 2013. Uh, their statistics, they said 12 million people annually borrow through payday lenders. The pitch is that they're short-term transactions for relatively small amounts. The average apparently is $375, and, and it's called payday loans because on the day that you get your paycheck, you're supposed to then go take that money and then repay it to the lender. But maybe some people are getting it just because they don't have access to conventional lending, or even if they tried to open an account, they wouldn't qualify for it for credit reasons. But they're usually going out of some kind of desperation that they have to get this money to pay some bill earlier than their paycheck. But then that means they've already spent the money on something by the time they get their paycheck. So they may not be able to cover that full amount. 
one of the other statistics there is that only 14% of the borrowers can afford to repay the loan in full. And then so it starts to dramatically increase either the amount you have to pay back, you know, or the, the interest rates and things like that. So it tends to spiral very quickly. Hence those ads Nate was talking about, about being, you know, trying to get out of that situation. The payday loan nightmare. Now, Schiller's article, again, he, he won the Nobel Economics Prize in 2013. 2013. Because of his work with like the Case Schiller Housing Index and stuff like that, I think is part of it. Having to do with his work around the housing bubble and the whole collapse and stuff. So he gave uh, a number of examples of, as I mentioned, this, this thing sort of goes in cycles, right? So he says, there have been a number of historical movements to democratize banking. In the early 19th century, there was the savings bank movement in Great Britain, followed by similar ones in the U.S., Germany. Germany, Switzerland, elsewhere. Many of these banks were set up as mutual institutions so that everyone would know that all profits reverted to the depositors. Philanthropists created them to give those with low income the means and incentives to save, hence their nonprofit characters. That same century saw the beginnings of the building society movement in Great Britain and then the savings and loan association movement in the United States, both of which were aimed at providing people the wherewithal to buy homes. Postal savings banks arose in that century and the early 20th century to provide savings vehicles to every town that had a post office. And then he, you know, continues there. We've heard of things like microfinance and stuff like that. Those are more modern innovations, but those tend to be focused on the developing nations. But we've got this problem even right here at home, which is again that that these lower income folks are cut off from access to banking services either by default or lack of available services or you know credit things. And it's not a great situation. It means that they can't start saving. They can't get loans for a car that's not going to fall apart. You know, they can't go buy a house. And obviously we. Saw saw then the like perverse trend up to 2007 or so where the banks were giving out loans to people they shouldn't have been giving out for you know home yeah. loans and stuff like that and that's obviously the opposite end of the spectrum you know on the other end there that that's not great either but there is a middle ground to be found there I think yeah, I was gonna say in many ways this is a like bizarre inversion of micro lending so instead of you know lending small amounts of money to someone so that they can finance some sort of job or project in their village, um, is often the case when you're talking about third world lending. Instead, we're lending small amounts of money to people, and then not only can they not pay it back, instead we're getting situations in which we're creating a sort of debtor class just by basically, I mean, slaving is too strong a word, but there's definitely sort of a cycle of servitude that comes with some of these programs where, you know, you pay a little bit and then you have to pay more and it keeps getting hiked up and, you know, it just is sort of a cycle. So, you know, we're, we need to be very careful about trying to make sure that there are financial instruments for lower income people to use, but at the same time, they're not exploitative and, you know, worsening the problem. And I think that the kind of the key th organizing principle for any any reforms taken in this direction has to be, like you said, this idea of is the money a loan on sort of a future growth thing that's going to earn more money? Or is it a loan on like some obligation that they already have, you know, something where it's it's just going to pay off some bill or it's just taking money out of a paycheck that's coming later. And obviously, if they didn't have cash flow problems, they wouldn't need to go get that service. So this is lending to desperation rather than as an investment. And so, I mean, it's the same thing with the subprime mortgage scams, you know, that those banks were running. The problem there I mean, there's a number of problems there, but the, the, the core of the problem at the heart of it is that you're lending money to people for properties that are going to not get as much money at best case scenario, not get as much money as you think they're going to make. 
worst case scenario are going to become worthless when the housing market collapses. So that's the similar thing, right? You, you're theoretically giving money to something that's going to grow in value, but in fact, that's not what it is. And so you're just creating the similar situation there. And this is where you get to that interface of the sort of personal savings bank oriented, you know, and, and local community banking versus these sort of Wall Street owned things. And that gets into that whole Glass-Steagall issue that you've probably heard a lot about, right? The idea that during the Great Depression, they put in this law, the Glass-Steagall Act, that said that investment banks on Wall Street couldn't own or intermingle their operations with a sort of more community-oriented bank, even if it was a big chain bank, like a savings bank. This got taken out in the 1990s. And the consequence there, if you really walk through it, and I think I've talked about this before on the show, is that if you have JP Morgan Chase or something like that, just to give an example of two companies that merged a Wall Street investment bank with a savings bank, the end product that's being given out to consumers is these home loans, these mortgages. But those are then being bundled up on Wall Street and resold as an additional product. The, the result of that is that they need more of the inputs to create the product on Wall Street that they can turn around and sell to companies. If they don't have those inputs, then they can't sell that product. So there became this pressure from, you know, the Wall Street side all the way down to the Main Street side to say, hey, you got to sell more of these. However you need to do it, you need to sell more of those, which meant the pressure was on just giving out loans without really thinking of the consequences, which sort of circumvents that whole reason that they do credit checks and things like that. If you had a more community bank oriented system that was really focused on meeting the needs of the community, financing local projects there, helping people buy cars that, you know, that they can actually afford that will, you know, hold up well and get them to their job and that sort of thing, buying homes or, you know, investing in things like that so that they're not eating up as much of their money on, you know, rentals without having anything to sell off later. If you had that community focus, then the banking would be serving the people and really your loan officers and stuff would be really focused on not just making a profit for some distant, you know, corporate parent company, but on making sure that the bank locally makes a profit, but also that the consumers don't get screwed over and that they make the right decision for them that they can actually afford. That's where you get away from that sort of predatory lending angle and get into that actually providing a service. Now, again, this gets into the question of how do you do this? You know, do you just regulate it more? Does the government need to provide more sort of banking networking systems that will reduce the costs of banking and make it easier for various other companies to start doing this? Should the government have its own bank that's specifically geared toward, you know, a certain income level or something like that? You know, there, there's any number of potential options. What do you think that in, in this situation, Nate, is the best way of going about this? You know, is this a job for the Consumer Protection Bureau? Where's the way that we tackle this? Yeah, well, it's good that you mentioned the Consumer Protection Bureau. I mean, just considering that there's some relatively new agencies following the financial collapse that have been charged with you know, making sure consumers are not, whether it's being swindled by banks or just not inv investing their money wisely, giving advice and things like that. So I think that definitely needs to be part of it. I think that there should be some various sort of banking regulations set down on, I mean, if we're just looking at these payday loan systems, I, there needs to be a consistent regulatory approach because, you know, you have these situations where 
oh, it's okay in 35 states, but it's been outlawed for being dangerous in 15 states. Okay, well, it can't be dangerous in 15 and not be dangerous in other states. So you need you need to have a sort of a federal approach to these kind of issues. So there are just a lot of, I mean, we're still facing the effects of the shadow banking system that has sort of come to light ever since the, the financial collapse in 2008. And even though there have been some attempts to regulate it, it's just so large and complex that pretty much by default, any attempt is going to fall short. So I think we need to continue tweaking these things, continue making sure that people, you know, whether it's giant financial collapses or people just having all their money taken away through a payday loan system, you know, we just need to figure out a way to protect the consumers in order to protect the sort of a sound financial structure, which we've been sort of lacking. There, there are all sorts of things that we need to do, and obviously it's, it's tough to enumerate them all here, especially with this payday loan system. I mean, the idea of like taking out money from someone's account when there's not even anything there basically to begin with, and you know that there wasn't anything taken out huge to begin with, and then overcharging and overdrafting them more, so it's just like a... I wouldn't say it's like Vegas or like a lottery type system, but the, basically the bank seems to be getting free money there. So it's just, it's it's very problematic. You know, I, I think it's this whole interplay between the sketchy behaviors by these supposedly classy, recognized, respected banks and these flickering neon sign payday loan institutions, that kind of thing. Because, I mean, there's the abuse of the cash payday. Cash for gold, huh? Right. The, the cash for gold places, the pawn shops, the payday loan places, you know, they're preying on people. But before the recession and before the Credit Card Reform Act of 2009, and even to some degree still continuing today, you still have those actual credit cards by, you know, mainstream companies and, you know, Capital One and, and uh, American Express constantly getting slammed by $80 million fines and stuff like that from the federal government for predatory credit card practices and, you know, violating the rules and regulations regarding contract language and fine print and all that kind of thing that they're not making clear to their customers what's going on. And I think there's a certain segment of the American population that's convinced, well, those people are just dumb and I wouldn't run into this problem and whatever, but they're not in that situation. They're not desperately trying to find some amount of money to make ends meet and are turning to whoever's going to provide it because whether or not it's predatory doesn't change that they need the money somehow. So we need to make a system that actually serves their needs and helps them get the money they need without screwing them over, but still is getting them some amount of money. And just another more macro point, a huge part of the financial collapse was a lowered rate of savings amongst American people and just sort of excessive spending without really any regards to the consequences, whether it was, you know, personal spending, spending on homes, things like that. And, you know, when we just look at that 25.1% of the bottom fifth of, of income distribution that they're not really having access to, you know, just elementary banking solutions, that really is going to impact the savings rate of the American people going forward. And we need to probably increase it just a little bit. You know, obviously, you don't want to go as high as like China or somewhere where that negatively impacts the growth of their economy. But at the same time, we clearly saw the dangers of just profligate spending over the past couple of years. Because right. so, eventually it just collapses yeah. and everyone pulls back on their spending because they can't. Well, it's like you know. the credit card. You know, you have your credit card and you, know, you just like swipe it a bunch of times. And then you look and it's like, oh, my God, it's like $400, $500, whatever. And then you have to sort of 
then deal with the consequences of like, okay, how do I transfer the money, bring it down, blah, 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 instead of, you know, actually having that immediate feedback like, oh, uh, I actually don't have enough money to purchase this, whatever. You know, you really need to be careful about the situations uh, people find themselves in. And if we're basically making it almost impossible for someone to get like a $50 payday loan extension, you know, without trapping them into a cycle of having to pay more and more and more, that's going to prevent people from saving. That's going to prevent people from having a little bit of money should they, you know, get laid off or, you know, are sick or something. And so that, I mean, that's a pretty important part of the economy. You People need a little bit of savings to fall back on sometimes. And if you don't have that, that just creates more problems for the economy. So what do you think about the idea? And again, I don't have specifics on this. It was just sort of floating around in my head about the idea of having like a government bank for lower income people or something where it's just it's a pretty simple no frills. Here's a savings account or, you know, here's how to get go through the process of trying to get a get a loan approved like a you know not a not a payday loan but like an actual loan for something i mean i wouldn't necessarily be against it if you could find some sort of good program that was run by people that are you know in the normal process of banking but you know not necessarily like they're like community banking or local banking type people not necessarily trying to ruthlessly get every single <laughs> last penny but you know trying to make loans that are important for the common good working with people. So, I mean, I wouldn't be against something like that. Maybe potentially tough to set up. Yeah, on the setup angle, I was kind of thinking about last night that maybe they could set it up as a sort of like how Britain has those quangos, the quasi non-governmental organizations. There's only two of those in the United States. One of them is the ICANN that runs the internet domains and stuff like that and determines, you know, make sure it's a it's a registry, essentially, but it's it's authorized by the government and backed by the government, but it's not actually a government body. And the advantage there is that you have the financial support necessary to set it up and you have that public good angle that a for-profit institution doesn't have and it's tightly regulated, but you don't have the government either directly running it or directly having access to like all the information on these people's accounts and stuff, which from a privacy standpoint, I can see why you probably wouldn't want to do it that way. I think also there's, you know, the immediate example that jumps to mind is how Uh, I was mentioning this to Nate before we started, but India several years ago had some program where they gave everyone in the country a savings bank account. And apparently the vast majority of these hundreds of millions of accounts have just been completely empty. So I can see why there would be some skepticism there for imposing a system like that in the United States. But I think that we need to look into having some sort of option for that or or maybe even there could be a government program where you give some sort of incentive to a community bank or even a big bank to have a special kind of account that's highly regulated no fees that kind of thing or no no unreasonable fees on that you know that's specifically geared toward a certain income level or something and you could have it set so that it's direct deposit your income goes in there and if it exceeds a certain amount then you got to go get a different kind of bank account or something like that you know i don't know if there's a way to do that but it seems like if this is something we want to pursue there are probably ways that it could be done all right well nate thanks for stopping by the studio to talk about these issues today thanks a lot bill that's all the time we have this week. Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email AFDRadio at gmail.com. The show is available for download from ArsenalForDemocracy.com on Tuesdays. You can hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark every Tuesday at noon Eastern. Our theme music was composed for us by Stuntbird. If there are articles or papers discussed in an episode, we usually post links to them on ArsenalForDemocracy.com along with each episode. 
from my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. <laughs>